Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, as we uh, begin the home stretch in our study in 1 Peter, we will pivot over the course of uh, early fall to 2 Peter and uh, continue our study on Peter's letters as he writes to uh, persecuted believers in a particular era and calls them to be faithful in the midst of their suffering. It's a difficult topic to deal with and to address. And as we look at what's happening in our culture, we reflect on some of the things that Peter has addressed about submission in chapter 2. We spend some significant amount of time there. He always calls us back to our utmost and a total submission to our Savior, Jesus Christ, but reminds us that there is an order to the culture. There is an an order and structure to the world. And that order and structure and culture in the world, uh, when jettisoned, leads to absolute conflict and and chaos. And um, I believe that we're seeing some of that before our very eyes in the culture at large today. Uh, A blind eye at law and order, unless it's somehow advantageous to us, a blind eye to the science, unless it's advantageous to us, a rejection of of the order of culture uh, from, from authorities and government to the home, to the church, uh, to the educational institutions, where, where everybody's kind of put on the same level, and everybody is able to make their own decisions, and everybody's able to do what's right in their own eyes. And, and in this, we, we call it sometimes philosophically a standpoint epistemology, which basically says truth is only true because I say so based on my experience in life. That's not the order of the universe, and a society cannot sustain itself under the chaos that rejects an order outside of ourselves and turns that into a a basic order within ourselves as well. What we find ourselves doing is flip-flopping back and forth between opinions based on what works for us and what's good for us, and that's all you have. You see, a society without meaning and a society without order cannot function. So when a society rejects the meaning and the order that is built into creation by the Creator, the telos, the teleology, the the order of creation, when a society rejects that, they have to find meaning in something else or the society dies. And what we're finding is a transition away from the Christian worldview to a worldview that rejects Christianity but demands the same thing. They demand allegiance, and they demand obedience, and they demand you live by their rules, but it's no longer God who is ruling. It is men and people who are distinctly sinful. Cultures can't survive without meaning and without order and without structure, and yet that's where we find ourselves, the culture that we live in. We talked last week and even the week before about a theology of suffering. If you've been paying attention, the media has begun to begun to, to resurrect some of the terminology from 
from former administrations that there's a group of people who cling to their religion and their guns and their Bibles and are unhealthy for the culture at large. Uh, that language was used to sum up the anti-vaccine sentiment, uh, sentiment in our culture today and pin directly on the Christian. And you might think that that's really no big deal and it's just an opinion, but the mantra seems to be consistently when, when faced with these struggles of the day that the Christians are the real problems. Now, why do you expect that is? Because the Christian believes in a telos. The Christian believes in an order. The Christian believes that outside of my own experience, outside of my own thinking, outside of my own wishes and desires, there's an order to the universe that maintains a sense of sanity. And to reject that brings insanity. So when the Christian speaks into the culture of the day and some of its crazy positions, whether it's gender fluidity and, and other such things, we automatically become the problem. The real problem is they have rejected the God of the Bible in a Christian worldview, and we represent that. And because we represent that, there are consequences, and eventually, like we've learned through cultures and societies long before ours, there is a suffering that comes with that. There is a price that comes with that whether it's ostracized or whether it's uh, people calling us bad names and uh, pointing the finger that we're somehow the problem in the culture, we must find ourselves standing true, staying faithful, and dealing with the realities of life that is bigger than us, dealing with the realities of a world that is bigger than us, a world that has been created, a world that is sustained, and a world that is ordered by God Himself. And this is the way civilizations and the world functions, and as much as we would like to change those rules, you can't. And any attempt to change those rules brings chaos and strife and confusion. In this whole wokeness that has overtaken evangelical Christianity, it has become this broad movement that challenges everything. And when it challenges everything, whether it's race or ethnicity or sex or gender or uh, systemic uh, structural societies or government or, or the home and the family or the church or the education institution, when indeed this wokeness begins to change the rules and reject the order that God has built into this culture, there is huge huge consequences to that. There's much to learn about injustice in the past, and there are course corrections that can be made and uh, some restoration that can take place in the culture to, 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 to live in such a fashion that um, we are not respecters of persons or skin color or ethnicity, etc. Yet at the same time, you will never find any sense of unity without the order created by God. In fact, wokeness has become so broad in our culture today that Owen Strand in his recent book, Christianity Wokeness, notes that the state, that wokeness is the state of being consciously aware of and awake 
to the hidden race-based injustices that pervade all of American society. But this term has also been expanded. This is where it gets big and, and it gets out of control when you reject order. Expanded to refer to the state of being awake to injustices that are gender Based and thereby our pronouns change and, and, and our gender is fluid and we can choose which day, what, what sex or gender we exhibit. And it goes even further to class-based uh, kind of in, injustice where, where uh, socialism rears its ugly head. And it's even come down to the place where any kind of hierarchy, any kind of hierarchy is considered evil abuse. My question is, does that include God? Yes, it does. People wish, people desire not to be beholden to a God who has made the world, who has ordered the world, and holds you accountable to that order. But to reject that order brings absolute chaos and confusion, and that is the culture that we're living in. The problem is, in this wokeness, all the rules change, and the true meaning of life, the true meaning of the universe is now defined not by the creator of that universe, but its creatures who worship themselves more than God, and Romans 1 becomes a reality, and God eventually gives us over to that, and what was once perceived as a Christian nation now becomes absolutely pagan in all of their practices. Remember, it's difficult to live in God's ordered world. Peter's told us to submit to those civil leaders over you. How's that working out for you? You grit your teeth. You yell about things. You're not real happy about that, but there's still an order. When that order is removed, chaos reigns. Law and order, retributive justice, what, what is that? Uh, God said, if you don't do what you are required and called to do, there is a consequence for that. You see, that's based on the sanctity of personal responsibility. Nobody wants that responsibility anymore. We don't want retributive justice. We want distributive justice. What does that mean? We want what we want. We want it on an equal plane, and no one should be able to tell me what to do. The world is not structured that way. It can't be structured that way. There's no meaning in that. Or the meaning solely becomes about the structure of society, and we know from socialism that that is a bankrupt system. Can the Christian stand on the telos of sexual distinctiveness in a, in a hostile reality? We must stand upon that. Can a Christian stand on the order of hierarchy, the order of uh, there are certain structures where there are rule givers or there are overseers of the culture and there are those who are obedient. Can, can the culture survive without that kind of thing? You say, what in the world does that have to do with First Peter chapter 5? I'll connect the dots for you. But this wokeness has infiltrated evangelicalism to such a grave degree that even in the church, we think we're entitled to our interpretation of the Scripture instead of the Scripture itself. Even in the church, we're entitled to do things our way in spite of the constitution of that church or the doctrinal statement of that church or the policy structure of that. It's simply not true. Chaos reigns in those situations. So, Peter transitions, and yet he's still talking about suffering 
in the text. And when he's talking about suffering, we have to go back to chapter 4, verse 19. Look at that quickly. Therefore, in light of the structure of the universe, you see, when he says therefore, he's not only summing up the prior verses, he's also summing up the full context of the letter. There's a trajectory to what Peter's saying here, and that trajectory has to do with, with, with telos and, and order and acknowledging God as being the final arbiter of right and wrong and just and unjust, and in spite of the world at large to continue to do the right thing and give up the, the passions of our former life and to live soberly and righteous, knowing that when you do that, living self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of the gospel, there are consequences to that. So do not be surprised, verse 12 of chapter 4, when trials come to test you as though some strange thing happened to you. Are you going to cling to the order, the telos? You're going to acknowledge that God is king, and he intimates in the text that that's the only way you survive a disordered culture. That's the only way the Christian survives a a woke culture is to go back and say there is a creator and sustainer of the universe, and God is always right. We must do it God's way. So when you suffer and when you experience the persecution standing in the face or against the, the trajectory of the culture… He sums up in verse 19, therefore, in light of this suffering by standing on truth, let those who suffer according to God's will, because they're clinging to that truth, let them entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. You continue to do what's good and let God handle the rest of that. He is a faithful Creator. And we looked quickly, or at least quoted the text of the gospel that He takes care of the the birds of the air fish of the sea and the, the lilies of the valley. Those are the very number of hairs on our head, no matter how little or great that is. We have a God who cares. We have a God who's engaged. We have a God who, who understands His creation, a God who sustains that creation. Trust Him in the midst of chaos of culture. His way is always best, so do good even in the chaos. And then he transitions dealing with this group of people persecuted, to dealing with a subset of that group who will suffer persecution as well, verse 1 of chapter 5. So, in suffering according to God's will and entrusting our souls to a faithful Creator, in doing good, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As he begins to wind down the text, he considers not just the body of believers at large in the culture, he is speaking specifically to those who are recipients of this letter and facing that persecution, and now he's speaking to the leaders who are trying to guide them through those times in which we live and the persecutions in which they're 
their people are facing, and He's giving guidance as to how they are to shepherd or to lead or to give guidance or help people see things as they really are, turn them back to the Creator who is faithful, maintaining fidelity to the gospel, and living soberly and righteous without not worrying about the consequences. Is it really possible? Sometimes I still worry about the consequences. So I too have to focus on my faithful Creator. I too have to focus on the book. I do have to remind myself that there is a God who created all things and sustains all things. And I'm a little cog in a big wheel, but God's will will always be done. And sometimes, Sometimes His will, which I don't always like, means that I might suffer persecution. What choice am I going to make? I suppose I ask you the same question. Where are you going to stand? This is not going to get easier. Now, I must confess that I go into this message with great fear and trepidation because I'm talking about my role, and everybody has an opinion about my role. Surprise, surprise. Some will think what I have to say is self-serving. I've served for 20 years here. I hope you know that's not the case. Some will think that I'm taking aim at other denominations and other people. I have no time for such foolishness. I just want to get the text right. But it's really hard to talk about a text that talks about what you do as you fulfill your calling. So be patient with me. But I'm still going to tell you the truth. I received a little postcard this week as I was struggling through preparing for this, this whole thing, and it just reminded me it's a privilege to have such a biblically sound teacher. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that, that, that the people that I serve want me to look into the book. Uh, forgive me that I will speak of my role but turn your attention to your faithful Creator, because there's an order to the church, too. And there's a grave consequence when we reject the order God has built into His church. Pray with me, please. Father, bless us as we spend some time this morning in a woke culture sorting out what's true and what's not true, and taking a stand for truth and learning when we can, but always holding absolutely to the truth, the faithful Creator of the universe who sustains all things and is built in an order that gives meaning to life, to our mere existence, to our culture and society at large. But we're living in a culture that has jettisoned that Christian worldview and are living for themselves. May we live different. May we stand different. May we pledge our allegiance to the God of all creation, the faithful Creator, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we wrestle through the order God has given over to His church, which doesn't preclude suffering. In fact, to fulfill the order for your church will bring name-calling and suffering in a world that lives so drastically opposed to the order you built into culture. Find us faithful. And for your glory alone, give us the perseverance to hang on, 
till we hear the sound of the trumpet. And maybe soon we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Quickly, this morning, looking at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to talk about the glorious calling of the shepherding or pastoral ministry. It is a glorious calling, not that it's better than your calling. It is a glorious calling, not that it's more important than your calling. It's a glorious calling when the pastor has the right perspective and asking himself, who am I that God would use me to do this? That is glorious. Every day I see my my frailties. Every day I'm reminded of my insecurities. Every day it's loud and clear that there are things I'm, I'm, I'm good at and things I'm not good at, and how could God use somebody like me? That's what makes the calling glorious. He chooses to use someone like me, just as He chooses to use someone like you. I am not better. I am not less than. My life is not easier. In some ways, it's harder. But it's a glorious calling because God is using this frail, feeble person to shepherd His people. That is an overwhelming concept to me. As Peter writes this, of course, he's writing as an apostle, but, but he was also a, a, a pastor and a shepherd. He is, he is saying that they're numerous, and he's writing to these, these churches and beleaguered people. He's talking about this, this, this number of elders who, who was a recipient of this letter and, and the various aspects of their, their life and ministry. I exhort you, I encourage you in a certain and particular direction, and he will give us that direction succinctly. In the coming verses, when he speaks of the elders among you within the body of Christ, it is the affirmation that there is a spiritual responsibility given to certain men in the context of, of the body of Christ in particular, and even the local church, whose primary task is feeding and teaching, and it's not based on age, and it's not based on, on anything else. It is based on a maturity and a calling that is glorious. And the task is, of course, to preach the Word. I exhort the elders among you. It seems like even these elders represented uh, different leadership positions assigned to different areas of, of the ministry, but collectively they were all heading in one direction. That's a really important point. But all of them are under-shepherds. The chief shepherd, of course, as we learn in the text, is Christ Himself. The danger and the mistake often made is from shepherds thinking it's their people. It's not my people. Not in a sense that I dismiss you like Moses. It's your people, God. Go deal with them. No, it's God's people because He rescued them with the blood of His Son. I always have to keep in mind that I'm not in charge. The truth is in charge, and Christ is in charge, and we must always point people back to the gospel. I exhort you, I encourage you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as, as someone who has been given the same responsibility to lead and to guide and to rule, reminds us of, of all the lessons that we can learn in, in Psalm 23 as a fellow elder, gifted and appointed, faced with the challenges and difficulties inherent in suffering, I am calling and encouraging you to be witness of the sufferings of Christ. He is saying, I am. Now, we are witnesses only in the sense that we can read of the sufferings of Christ in Scripture. 
Peter's authority came from the fact that he was there. He was there. And by the way, I happen to believe that Peter's own experience is kind of built into the text. <laughs> he's reminding himself and the other shepherds that he's not the one and only and the end all. Remember what he said at the crucifixion, right? Can't trust the rest of these guys, Jesus, but I'm there. I'm there. He denied the Lord three different times, a horribly broken man that was restored to his, his position and his calling as, as one who leads and guides and connects, and it brought a, a sense of humility. It seems to be gone sometimes. We've traded the basin and towel for head tables and titles, and we bicker over who's in charge of… That's not the way this is supposed to be. You want to know who's in charge of First Baptist? King Jesus, thank you. <laughs> well, how do we know what He wants from us? The Word, thank you. That's why every time we sit down, we say, open the book, turn your Bibles to. This isn't complicated. We make it very complicated. I'm witness to the sufferings he personally saw, he experienced, and he is testimony to the fact that Christ suffered. What did he just say in chapter 4? And because Christ suffered, you're going to suffer too. You're going to be a partaker in His suffering. He's tying the text together. He's speaking of the redemptive work of, of gospel preaching. He's saying, I'm a trustworthy source. Even in my failures, I've earned the right to teach. I've been called to this glorious calling. I am a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. That's a great statement. That glory is here and now, not just something future, but it will be fulfilled and, and complete when we see Christ and become like Him. It is still glorious to know that we are stamped by the Holy Spirit, washed in the blood of the Lamb, sealed for eternity, knowing a better day is coming. Isn't that glorious today? And then Monday happens. And the suffering comes, and it's not so glorious anymore. Yes, it is. It's still glorious, but it reminds me that the fullness of that glory will not be seen until He comes again. There's a common theme throughout Peter's letter. He always talks about Jesus Christ being revealed. He said this is all going to be over when we see Him and become like Him. But for right now, it's still glorious. But the glory that's going to be revealed, wow, you can't even imagine what that might be. But Peter probably had an inkling, because we read in Matthew 17, he got a glimpse of that glory. And if you remember, he was on the mountain, two other disciples, and Spirit descended on, on Christ, and, and there was this radiant glory. They saw the glory of the Lord. It reminds me of Isaiah in the vision of chapter 6. He saw the, the, the transcendent glory of God. When he talks about the glory to be revealed, he's got an idea of what that is. And wow, it was so spectacular. He said, we're not going off the mountain. This is the place we stay. And Jesus said, not now, not now in time but not now. We know the glory, but when it is revealed, it will be more glorious than you can ever imagine. That glory is for every believer, but in particular, He is talking to the elders among you, and He says to those elders among you in the midst of this glory, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. As pastor and teacher, you must lead. You must give guidance. You must oversee. You are accountable to God. 
and the way that you deal with His people. I'm reminded of 1 Timothy in the midst of suffering that says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing in His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Can I share with you, we are living in the out of season when it comes to preaching the Word of God. It is not popular. We don't live in that world anymore. There is not the respect and reverence any longer in existence in our world. But preach the Word and be prepared when it's popular and when it's not. Correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. That time has come. Instead, to suit their own desires, standpoint, epistemology, They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside into myths, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all your duties of your ministry. When it gets tough, you are still accountable to your glorious calling. I can tell you, the last 10 years, things have gotten exponentially harder when it comes to shepherding and leading in truth. Exponentially. Dangerously so. But it doesn't matter. Even in the midst of that time when you were suffering for righteousness, shepherd the flock of God, a reminder that it is not my flock, it is God's flock, and I am just given charge over it while we are here on this earth. And I'm reminded of the weight of the conviction of Luke chapter 12, to whom much is given, much shall be required. I know that well. I know that well. Burden sometimes is heavy. Again, I want you to just understand the reality of the text. I'm not looking for your pity. I'm not looking for your compassion. I'm just telling you the truth. Peter's telling us the truth. This isn't going to get easy. And elders, especially, shepherd the flock of God and get ready for the suffering. And be reminded that it's not your flock. It's the flock of God that is among you. You've just been entrusted by God for this. What does it mean? to shepherd and to exercise oversight. By exercising oversight, he's saying to have scope over, to look after, to lead, and, and to guide, and to feed, to be responsible. There's a buck that stops at my desk, whether I like it or not. And in this age of, of the rejection of sanctity of personal responsibility, I don't get that choice. When a pastor deflects and blames other people, he has shirked his responsibility. I have no such luxury but to deal with it. This text often has been used as the text that would challenge or champion one church polity or form of government over another. But I'm reminded of, of what R.C. Sproul once wrote. He said, today a pastor is expected to be a psychologist, a theologian, a biblical scholar, an administrator, a preacher, a teacher, and a community leader. The minister spends so much time on secondary matters that he has little time to do his principal work, which is to feed the sheep through preaching 
and teaching. That's the primary job of any kind of shepherd. That is what will bring the greatest persecution when you're telling a truth in a world that doesn't want to know truth. But there's still an analogy between the shepherd and the flock that is a critical analogy. We read about it in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's a picture that takes place, a word picture if you would, in the land of Palestine where where they take these sheep at night into these sheepfolds, and, and these sheepfolds are usually a rectangular, maybe sometimes a circular place where riled, uh, rocks are piled up, and the shepherd will lead the sheep in there, and those, those rocks will protect them from predators during the night, and, and the shepherd stands on watch to protect those sheep, and, and there's this rock shield, but ultimately he's responsible for the sheep that are in this pen. What often would take place in the context of that The shepherds would hire someone to do that for them, but those ones who were hired to do it for them did not do it as well as the shepherd. They had no skin in the game. I'm reminded often in pastoral ministry that there are so many people who know how to do it better. The problem is they've never done it. It's it's not their calling. It's, It's my calling. You can't hire this job out. You can't have somebody else do it for you. It's a glorious calling. You must you must do it yourself. Sometimes within the sheepfolds, several shepherds would shuffle all their sheep into the same enclosure. And in the morning would come and the sheep have intermingled during that evening and nighttime hours. And now they had to sort out all of those sheep. What did they do? Here's the beauty of the passage. They know the voice of their shepherd. So Sam the shepherd, and of course we're making up names here, calls out to his sheep and gloriously, his sheep go to Sam. And, and, and Tom calls out to his sheep, and they know his voice, and they go to him. And when Jesus calls out his sheep, they go to him. There's a picture of divine election, but we know his voice, and we hear him, and we respond to him. Why? Because he's a shepherd. He looks out for them. He guides them. He feeds them. He protects them. He keeps them. And that's how they separate it, and that's a perfect picture perfect picture of having oversight, to be responsible, to look after. There are implications to that. One of the grave challenges of pastoral ministry today is that there are so many voices screaming to the sheep today, voices that are far more articulate than I am, voices that are far more gifted than I am as an orator, voices that are far more educated than I, although I have a a lot of education. And you're competing for those voices. That's a dangerous situation. When sheep can't recognize the voice of the shepherd, confusion reigns. There's got to be some kind of order. There's got to be the one shepherd whose voice they know and hear, thank God that's Christ. And, and, And I'm not fearful of using, losing you because the chief shepherd says, not possible. He's going to keep you in the palm of his hand. But I do fear sometimes that the voices are so great because people are being called in different directions that, that it does grave harm to the local church ministry. Even in a local church, there's got to be one voice. Otherwise, we find the core in time of Peter, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of… Stop it. We're all of Christ, aren't we? You want to know how to hear the voice of God? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, right? We, we read 
We read the book. And in this leadership, the sheep know the voice, and, and they understand who's been given responsibility to lead and guard and, and feed. And, and in a woke culture where everyone gets a trophy and everybody's right in their own eyes, chaos reigns. When chaos reigns, the truth gets stifled in people's lives into a state of confusion. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, not because you have to, not because you're forced to. Do it willingly. I also think that there's a motivational component to this. Be diligent. You can't be lazy. That's not the place for laziness. We've made the pastoral glorious calling about a vocation that has worked during certain hours or, in some of your minds, only on Sunday, and, and, and that's when the pastor works. No, the pastor works until the work is done. And sometimes it takes a long time to wrestle through the text, and, and there's no 40-hour… How can I punch out at 40 hours when you come here on Sunday and serve for three or four hours? If I'm asking you to do that, I can't punch out at 40. You were at work too this week. We've got to put some perspective on all of this. There, there, there's no time clock of responsibility, but there is, listen carefully, a priority to ministry. And I know very well and have fallen prey to all of the voices and demands that, that people make of you. My first calling is to wrestle with the text and to get the text right and to do the text justice and to preach the Word. I can't plagiarize with someone else's sermon because I've shirked my responsibility. I can't give you a book and say, read this because I've shirked my responsibility. My responsibility is to wrestle with the text and tell you the truth, to preach the Word. That's got to be a priority, and I've not always been good at keeping those things separate. But I've also learned from texts like this, the only thing that really matters is to keep that separate and feed you with the book when you gather here to face the struggles of life. Don't do it because you have to. Someone makes you, oh boy, I got to minister today. Yeah, check out. Just, just check out. Do yourself and everybody else. It's a privilege. It's a glorious calling. God is using me. And I believe that that mentality ought to filter down to our teachers in this ministry too. God is using you. Yeah, I asked the same question. You're using them? God, isn't it glorious that He would use any of us? It's His flock. We do this because we desire to please the shepherd. We don't do it under compulsion. We don't whine about its challenges. Oh, sometimes we do. But we try and keep that straight. We do it willingly as God would have us to do that, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not because we're making a name for ourselves, not because we're getting rich and wealthy. No, you're doing it because it's a glorious calling. And I understand after almost 40 years of ministry, what Paul was talking about, when he talks about the burden of care for the church, this is not something I would have chosen to do by myself. Can I tell you this? It's not something I could have chosen. I'm an introvert by nature. But it's a glorious calling. And God, through His Holy Spirit, gives me the ability and the work ethic to preach the Word in season and out of season. And I'm humbled by that. 
Do it eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge. This is where things have really changed in the last 10 years. Because in this woke culture, and let's connect the dots, we'll reject any kind of hierarchy, and no one can tell me what to do. Pastors in the enviable position of saying, this is God, what, what, what God tells us to do. This, this is what we hold you to. This is what you're, you're accountable to. And it's perceived as a, a white patriarchy. It's, a, it's perceived as some kind of injustice. It's perceived as, who do you think you are? I am a bit player on a big stage, but I represent the living God. And if I stay true to the book, you're accountable. You're accountable. But nobody wants that accountability. Everybody wants to do their own thing. That's inside and that's outside of the church. So at times it will seem like you're domineering. I don't have the time to look, but read the book of Galatians when you go home. Paul was a shepherd too. When you look at this domineering and then compare it to the text of Galatians, boy, he was really hard on those people sometimes. You foolish Galatians. Real pastoral, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It's a difficult thing. You have to keep in, in check this, this notion of, because I said so, and the only way you do that is staying in the book with the realization that it's not because I said so, it's because God said so, and it's His church, and it's got to be His way. Everybody's dominated today when they're told what to do. Somehow that's oppressive. So, somehow that's inequitable. Somehow that's just not fair. We'll take it up with the chief shepherd. Must you guard your heart? Must you live with this divine tension of thus saith the Lord and keep it thus saith the Lord and not Pastor Jim says the Lord or you understand the tension. It's difficult. I fall prey to the same things you fall prey to, but you don't do it in a, in a domineering way, but instead be an example to the flock. I hope and pray that in some way, over my tenure here, I've been an example, but I think in this way, I've shown you that I can persevere through really difficult and challenging times personally and otherwise still stick to the task of my glorious calling. And if I can pass that on to you when we go through the season of suffering, you're going to be okay too. You live by example. You have to practice what you preach, and this is what causes me to shudder. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul said that. Wait a second. You are a wretched man indeed, but glorious save through Jesus Christ, be faithful to your Creator and preach the Word in season and out of season. In the text, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And again, a reminder that it's not about me. It never has been. It's about Christ. This crown of glory intimates in this season of the 2020 Olympian, the crowns that the athletes would receive in Greek and Roman games. They were, they were woven, uh, leafy kind of crowns, and, and it was glorious when you got it, but eventually it withered and, and died. 
Peter's saying, hey, listen, for you shepherds, there's a crown that you will receive that will not wither and die. It is an unfading crown. He uses a a word picture of a flower in that day that didn't fade or wither. It is a glorious crown of glory because it's a glorious calling. Been here for at least preaching for 20 years in the spring, serving for 20 years full time. I wish there were some do overs. There's some things I might do different as I go back, but you got to respond to the culture and the people and the situations the best you can according to the book and lead. Sometimes that brings some suffering even inside the church. When I go home on, on Sundays, I don't depend on accolades or attaboys or notes of what a… I'm just blown away from your service. I measure the success of my calling by whether or not I put enough time and energy into really understanding the text and communicating that text. And on Sunday, I've come to realize the Holy Spirit takes it from there and does things in your life that are just glorious (laughs) that I couldn't have done if I wanted to. So when nobody's looking, that's when you're shepherding. When no one's wanting your direction, that's when you're shepherding. When nobody likes what you're saying, that's when you're shepherding. When you're toiling away for the sake of your calling and the feeding of a God's people, when nobody's looking, that's, that's when you're shepherding. And I can tell you, after all these years, that's a glorious calling. But the last 10 years has gotten harder and harder and harder as the culture has become more woke and woke and woke. And it's not just out there anymore, it's in here. Those who are called to lead must lead according to the book, and all of us must remember that it is Christ's church. So even to the shepherds, he says, after you've suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. People ask me often, how can I pray for you? There it is right there. That's how you can pray for me, that the God of all peace and all grace will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish me to fulfill this glorious calling. And just like the recipients of the letter, Shepherds are called to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And if indeed this Satan can consume the shepherds that God has put in place, he can destroy the church. That's why shepherds are especially called to be faithful to their calling. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I am not the first to go through these challenges and not the last. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. 
So just know that as you pray that, sometimes that establishment comes through the suffering for the cause of Christ, but it is a good cause for to Him be dominion forever and ever, quorum Deo. Every day I ask myself, God, are you pleased? Are you pleased? And every day I'm reminded how inadequate I am, but it's a glorious calling. In this world, you will suffer persecution. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, even so come Lord Jesus. So we preach the gospel, and we open up the book, and we lead and we guide for the glory of God alone. And if we can stay on that path, He will keep us until that glorious time that we hear the sound of the trumpet, even so come Lord Jesus. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for… for being willing to use me, even when you're weary, strengthen, guide, confirm, enable, and show me how to persevere as we enter an age of suffering for your glory alone, as I shepherd the flock of God given to my care, a weighty task, but a glorious task indeed. Provide what is needed, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.